Welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to come hang out and talk some basketball with Tommy and I. Tommy, how you doing today, man? Fantastic. Uh, couldn't be better. Getting through uh, through hump day okay and just kind of basking in the glory of a, a couple weeks worth of great Steph Curry performances. I'm, uh, I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. <laughs> He's, he's been incredible. I've been riding the struggle bus. I have been grouchy all day because I feel like I'm getting old. Um, in the last couple of days, I have uh, randomly started suffering shoulder pain that appears to be something in my joint. I have this morning I woke up to play basketball at 5 a.m. I put my shoes on and I'm walking across the court over to the basket that I usually warm up on while I'm waiting for everybody else to get in there. And my ankle just starts hurting. And I'm like, that's weird. I don't remember hurting my ankle and the pain just kind of lingered and lingered and it kind of eventually went away after I got warmed up. But then as soon as I stopped playing, it started hurting again. And, and then also I have to apologize in advance. I've had like really bad allergies the last couple of days. Uh, uh, I never had allergies in my early twenties. And now all of a sudden the last couple of years, it's like literally just nonstop congestion, runny nose, all that crap. Um, which is just infuriating to deal with. I feel like I'm literally breaking down and I'm only 29 years old. I don't know what's going on. Old age comes for all of us, man. It's funny you say that about your shoulder because I went and uh, my, I wasn't able to bench press like 25 pound dumbbells a couple days ago. Like my right shoulder was just catching. Like I couldn't get it past a certain point. And I went and saw my buddy and he's like, oh yeah, you just got some tendonitis in your right shoulder. And I said, tendonitis? I was like, isn't that something you get when you're like 45? And he's like, yeah, man, you played sports when you were a kid. You're screwed. Like, it's just going to start all happening really quickly. Oh, it's ridiculous. I, I hurt mine swinging a golf club. Like, yep. there are old-ass men playing golf and not getting hurt. And somehow I managed to, to hurt myself playing golf. And literally I, the, where I realized it was bad was same thing. Yesterday I tried bench pressing, and I did like – two reps of my warm-up set and it was hurting and i was like dude i gotta stop like i don't know what's going on here anyway i, I'm I normally yeah i normally warm up with like 40s or 50s and i couldn't even pick those up so i tried 25s and it was just done i was uh, like there how is this happening i'm only 29 and you know i'm a big believer that like feeling pain is is your body telling you something uh i've actually had a stress fracture before it was the only injury i suffered when i was uh playing basketball in college thankfully it happened during an off season so i never missed a game because of it but like it was a pain that was localized to an area that was like my body trying to tell me something so i'm a big believer in listening to that stuff but man i feel like it just has been incessant lately yep. um uh but yeah so we're going to talk uh we're going to do our version our first inaugural version of an nba power rankings today I like the idea. I, Tommy and I were talking about this the other day. I like the I like the idea of of talking about teams within the structure of something else, whether it's a you know an MVP debate or a all NBA teams kind of thing or a power rankings kind of thing because it just makes it a little more fun, adds a little bit more structure. So we're going to be doing power rankings today. Hopefully, getting one through ten, but we'll see how much time we have. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about this was actually Tommy's idea. And it's super interesting. There's a strange phenomenon right now in the league. Uh, having to do with scores, just being ridiculously efficient. Um, and the, it's a league-wide thing. And I have my own personal theories about it. Tommy has his personal theories about it. We're going to talk about it for just a minute here before we do the power rankings. But I wanted to give some basic numbers to give you an idea of just how unusual this is. So but to give you an idea, the last time somebody went 50-40-90 for a whole season over 20 points per game was – you guessed it, Steph Curry in 2016. Literally no one's done it since. And this season, Kyrie Irving, Chris Middleton, and Paul George are all 
over 20 points per game, over 50% from the field, over 40% from three, over 90% from the line. So three in one season after not having any for the previous three seasons, including Steph Curry himself in that span. Now, uh, uh, if you remove the free throw qualification, so just 50% from the field and 40% from three, we have 10 guys averaging over 20 points per game, shooting over 50% from the field and over 40% from three. If you drop it down to like guys who are nearly at that point, so 48% field goals, 38% free throws, or 38% threes, we have 16 players in the league averaging at least 20 points and hitting those numbers. So absolutely crazy stuff. I have my own theories, but I want to let you kind of lead into this. What's your theory as to why there appears to be uh, a, preponder- uh, a preponderance of, of players who are who are scoring at an extremely efficient clip this season as opposed to years in the past? Well, I think with anything like this, it's typically more than one thing to try to just narrow it down and say, hey, it's only this one thing happening, and that's why we're seeing any type of phenomena is kind of short-sighted and, and just misinformed. So I think it's a couple things. Number one, I think – With no fans in arenas, it is more of a static environment than NBA players are used to. It's not as static as the bubble, where it was literally the same backgrounds and no travel at all times. But it is still a pretty static environment, right? Probably less cameras in arenas, uh, less fans in general. And just there's not the probably the variance in shooting performances where a guy gets maybe rattled by a road crowd. And instead of going, you know, two for 16 on the road, he only goes six for 16. And at the end of the day, that's going to help those percentages stay a little bit higher. Um, I also think that guys are just working on their skill sets more, working on becoming more varied scorers, especially from the three-point line. Uh, Since Steph Curry kind of revolutionized the league with off-the-dribble three-point shooting, it is a skill that basically every player under 6'8 works on. And if you're not, then you're going to get left behind. Um, And I think it's really those two things. And then I think also a little bit the emphasis on offense in the league in general from um, a league-wide standpoint from the league office and not allowing as physical of play and kind of emphasizing freedom of movement rules. I think it's all three of those things to say it's any one of them or one is contributing more than the the rest. I'm not sure, but I think it's probably a combination of all three of those things working in concert together. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, 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 there's one thing that I find particularly interesting, but I do agree with you about all the other topics. I think the lack of crowds and the ability to focus has helped. I think uh, a lot of NBA players, CJ McCollum has talked a lot about this, in his recent podcast with Bill Simmons, basically the idea that these guys are just as a result of these traveling bubbles that they're in with the tightened, uh, uh, the, the tightened rules that they're, they're playing under, they are just diving into the game of basketball. And it's just leading to some really high quality play. We saw that again in the in the bubble. It just goes to show you how much distractions during a normal season have an impact on on the way these guys play. Uh, uh, the big one that's really interesting to me is uh, one of my longstanding philosophies just about life in general, having to do with people just getting better as time goes on at stuff and, and, and it being kind of a movement as everybody pushes each other in the same direction, almost from a competitive standpoint. So, for instance, you know, MJ gets out of the league. MJ makes a, a, a just destroys the league as this as this mid range scorer who kind of insists on almost only taking uh, 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 shots out of isolation in various forms uh, uh, around the floor from the mid range, which is historically considered usually a, a, an inefficient spot on the floor. And it kind of led to this like next era of players, guys like Kobe, guys like T Mac, guys like Carmelo Anthony is another great example of a guy like this where they almost just tried to do the same thing that MJ did but weren't as effective at it. And it, and, it, and it ended up leading to this 
uh, it, it ended up leading to this era where efficiency kind of tanked. And I think I credit Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving for leading this movement. Steph Curry as well. I should add him in there. Uh, as players who kind of made being efficient scores cool again. You know, like uh, adding, you know, all three of those guys, uh, K- uh, K- uh, Kyrie, or KD and Steph in particular, have made becoming, you know, finding easy shots on the floor and making them cool again. And, and I think that it's kind of a league-wide phenomenon now. There's There are less mid-range jump shots being taken. That's going to directly impact efficiency, although the best scorers in the league can still do that to some extent. And then, the, uh, uh, like you mentioned, just a league-wide, basketball worldwide uh, uh, movement towards becoming good three-point shooters and how that just has changed it. But I think it's really cool to see how the entire basketball world has just evolved to the point where – you know, scoring is only acceptable when done efficiently. Right. And I, and I, and I think basically you're getting left behind if you don't become that way. It's an interesting point comparing it to the two thousands when you had kind of all of the, the heir apparent of Jordan who were just set on taking as many mid range jumpers as possible, making them as difficult as possible. If you try to do that now, you literally just get left behind. Like DeMar DeRozan is an incredible mid range player, but he's gotten left behind by a lot of his peers because he basically insists on only taking mid-range jumpers, and he's super efficient at those, but he can't keep up because the guys who he's competing against are shooting seven, eight threes a game, and they're doing it near 40%. Um, even a guy like Donovan Mitchell, who's been historically kind of mid-30s, and I think we can kind of dive into Utah after doing this maybe, um, he's like historically mid-30s. This year he's shooting eight threes a game, and he's shooting at like 41.5%. That is insane five six years ago you'd have been like oh my god this guy is the greatest shooter of all time and now it's just like yeah he's a really good shooter but there's seven eight nine ten other guys in the league who are doing the same exact thing yeah lebron famously once said in an interview uh when he was in miami i am not a shooter or no i think he was actually in cleveland but he said i am not a shooter it's not what i do and it, it always really bothered me when he said that because I was like, come on, man, that, that shouldn't be your mentality. Your mentality is I'm great at everything. That's what it should be. But regardless, what he said, what he said didn't match up with his actions, which was he made himself into a great shooter. Mm-hmm. And that's a great example. Like LeBron is still the best player in the league, in my opinion, in, in his 18th season. And a big part of that is the fact that he adopted a playing style that matches the current era which is he needs to be efficient on all, on all areas of the floor. But I, I do think it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if these guys uh, uh, are able to keep this up because I do think that over the course of the season, as defenses get into a rhythm, as conditioning gets better, uh, especially as we get out of this pandemic phase, as we get into April and May when things are a little bit more free-flowing uh, in what they're allowed to do, if defenses get better, and and it just and it just kind of trends back more towards normal. But it, I, I think it's a good thing. Uh, I do ha- I do agree with you that they're a little too uh, forgiving on on the, to the offensive player in terms of the way they officiate the game. And I think that that can be a problem. Uh, you and I have talked at length about how officiating is is dog shit in the NBA right now. Uh, the, those are problems. But in terms of the skill set of these NBA players, I think it's awesome. I, I think it's I think it's great for the game uh, just to have. Uh, just it, it, it raises the overall level of skill. No one wants to see Eric Snow, great player, great defender. No one wants to see Eric Snow playing meaningful basketball games where the dude, you know, can hardly dribble with his head up. You know what I mean? Like that's where that, that's where it can become a problem. Yeah, I, I think they're going to have to legislate some defense back into the game at some point because right now it's ridiculous. I mean, you have Luca and Trey both who are like six times a night they pump fake and then they jump 
four feet forward into their defender and somehow they still get the foul call. They're the ones shooting free throws at the line. Like that's the type of stuff that has to go. And I think that's also the stuff that's helping some guys improve efficiency because a lot of their bad shot attempts get washed away by bad foul calls. But overall, no, I think it's absolutely a, a great thing for the game. Anytime you have a bunch of guys who are super skilled at any type of event, sport, whatever, it overall makes the, the viewing experience better. So it's no, it's obviously overall a positive thing. Yeah, it'll, it'll be something uh, worth keeping an eye on. And we're going to talk on some of these guys more in depth as we get down this uh, power ranking. So, you know, everybody does power rankings differently. Uh, uh, there's a bunch of different ways to look at it. It's no different than the MVP or any any other, you know, NBA award or MB, NBA topic that we look at. I tried to kind of balance between how well teams have been playing lately and how well they've been playing for the whole season and how well they project to play when they get into the playoffs. Although I factored that last one a little less because at the end of the day, you know, it is, it is the regular season. Um, I, I, you know, broke it kind of into tiers. I had, you know, the obvious clear four teams at the top, you know, the Jazz, Lakers, Philly, and, and the Clippers. And then there's kind of two funky teams. There's Milwaukee, who's 16 and 8, but they've literally played nobody. Um, they, they only have four wins against teams that are 500 or better. Uh, Phoenix is, is, has a good record, but they've had a weird situation with COVID. And then there are just a huge chunk of teams that are all right around 500, either a game or two below 500 or a game or two above 500. And so splitting hairs between those teams, it's difficult to do. So I, that's what I want to kind of dive into today. But I, so I, I put the, uh, I gave the Lakers a slight edge over Utah. Uh, strictly because I think they have a few of the most impressive wins of the season, them going into Milwaukee and really manhandling Milwaukee, uh, handling Boston the way they did. Uh, and then there's a third one in there I'm forgetting just recently. Oh, Denver. They completely obliterated Denver the other night. Uh, the Jazz also are, 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 are playing really well. They're 9-1 and one in their last 10. In their last 10, they're second in offense and fourth in defense. It's really neck and neck for me right there. The tiebreaker for me was the fact that the uh, uh, the Lakers, I think, project to be a much better playoff team. So first of all, w- which team would you take number one, the Jazz or the Lakers? I have the Jazz at one right now because it's not only nine of the last 10, it's 16 of the last 17 that they've won. They've won 16 of 17 games, and they are they're playing a brand of basketball that honestly we've never seen before in terms of combining not only the volume of three-pointers they're shooting, but the efficiency they're shooting them at. It's essentially Daryl Morey's wet dream what they're doing right now. They're taking around 43s a game and they're making like 17 of them. Right now they have six guys shooting at least four threes a game. And most of those guys are, and five of them are shooting at least six a game. And five of those six guys are shooting at least 40% from three. Now I've had a lot of complaints over the years about teams that just chuck threes at nauseum and they're shooting like mid thirties percent. They're literally just playing math ball and they're not even trying to play an honest form of basketball. What Utah doing is the way you should try to do it. If you're going to shoot a lot of threes, you not only get shooters, you get good shooters. You're not Milwaukee or Houston where you're getting a bunch of guys who shoot 35% and you just hope the math works out at the end of the day. Utah has obviously put thought into this. They have a bunch of guys who are really, really good shooters and can shoot it in a variety of ways. And they're just a super fun team, man. And they're anchored by a guy who's going to be top three in defensive player of the year voting again. And then I think a guy in Donovan Mitchell who some people have argued is the third best player on the Jazz. And I do see that argument just from the standpoint of he's probably the third best in his specific role. Like Gobert's one of the best in the league at his role. And Conley has been obviously amazing this year. We touched on that in the last pod, but 
Mitchell has improved year over year. Um, like I said, he's shooting, like I said earlier, he's shooting 41% on eight attempts a game from three. And his finishing, like within basically the restricted area, is actually down this year compared to the rest of his career. He's only about 54, 55%, when for his career is around 62%. So if he gets back to his normal levels at the rim, he's going to be another guy who's shooting mid 40s from the field, over 40% from three, scoring over 25 points a game. And I would look, I would still pick the Lakers over them in a theoretical series. But this is the regular season, and they deserve credit for what they're doing right now. They're an incredible basketball team. And they just – I mean, they were just flat out better than Boston last night. And Boston's one of those mid-tier teams. And to me, beating Boston pretty soundly proves that they are one of the four best teams in the league. And right now, I think they're playing the best basketball of anybody. So I like the point you made about Mitchell because I, <clears throat> I agree. I don't think he's necessarily been their best player this season. I think that probably is between Conley or Gobert, but he's very clearly their most important player for whatever their ceiling is. Because when it, you know, I I talked about this a lot on Twitter last night after the game, but like I, there, he is their alpha dog who can reach the, the, you know, the atmospheric heights that you need to reach from somebody in your, uh, in the stars that, that are at the, uh, you know, that are controlling your team in order to beat the team that might be better than you. Um, you know, and, and it, it remains to be seen whether or not he's capable of that, but he's the guy who, who he's the guy that will inevitably determine the fate of this team. Now you, you had mentioned at the beginning, you said that, uh, I've never really seen anything like this team. It's ironic because they kind of remind me of like an evolutionary version of last year's bucks in the sense that when you watch last year's bucks, what they did was they defended like crazy, particularly at the rim uh, with, with uh, Brooke Lopez. They would funnel everybody to Brooke Lopez at the rim. And then they would sprint down your throat in transition and, and always have these guys trailing for threes. It was frequently, it was, it was Chris Middleton, but it was, they, they were a team that was uh, aggressive at putting pressure on the rim and then taking advantage of sucking your defense in to, to get three-point shots. And Utah's kind of doing that at a better level because instead of having guys like Wesley Matthews shooting threes, they have guys like Joe Ingles shooting threes. You know, just better, they just have better shooters doing the same things that Milwaukee was doing. Now, they're not exactly the same because they don't have a Giannis type of wing out there, but their defense is trying to funnel everybody towards Rudy Gobert. And on offense, they're putting as much pressure on the rim by driving and attacking closeouts with Conley and Mitchell, getting you into rotations. And just they have, they have two really, really good players on the wing in Royce O'Neal and, uh, and Joe Ingles at attacking closeouts. The, every possession, they're attacking uh, a, a defender that's at a disadvantage and just doing basic plays, shooting the three or put the ball on the floor and make the next pass to the next guy who's going to be open. And it, it's, it's kind of like pretty basketball, but it's very regular season basketball, if that makes sense. Sure, it absolutely is. And I would also include Bogdanovich in that, in that uh, yeah, part oh, of the wing. Sure. Sorry, it's a, it's a trio really of wings. And mm-hmm. I think another important distinction to make, besides the shooting from Milwaukee last year, like they're just better shooters, is that Snyder has really taken – the kind of Popovich adage of like make a decision in 0.5 seconds. That's a, that's a great Popovich thing. Essentially when you catch the ball, you should either be shooting, passing or dribbling within 0.5 seconds, quick decisions. And I think Snyder has one really emphasized that because he is a Popovich coaching tree guy. And number two, I think they just have better overall passers than a team like Milwaukee, right? They have guys who can not only put the ball on the ground, but when they put the ball on the ground, they typically make the correct read and just, 
that is so key when playing against high-level NBA defenses because it gives you that extra split-second window to maybe get a shot off or create a bad closeout, and now we're redriving again and we're creating either a layup for somebody else or a wide-open three. They're just they're really fun, man, and I typically don't enjoy the teams that launch 40 to 50 threes a game and they're doing it just drive and kick, but the thing is they're actually doing it the right way. They got really good shooters, and not only and those shooters can make good decisions too. It's It's so much different to me than a team like Milwaukee, specifically last year, where it's like these guys are just kind of hoping the math works in their favor. They're not actually playing to their strengths. Utah's playing to their strengths, right? They have guys who can make quick decisions and guys who can knock down threes at a super, super high rate. So I can't – look, I'm still going to doubt their overall playoff ceiling unless Mitchell really, really turns it on and becomes like – you know, the, the archetype would be like, third-year D-Wade when he took Miami to the championship, right? They hopefully get lucky with a couple injuries to to key competitors, and Mitchell takes it up another level in the playoffs, and he kind of is able to to be their guy late in games, and he's able to score efficiently enough to where they can beat most people. And if he keeps shooting 41% from three on that volume, they're going to have probably. a puncher's chance. They're going to have a puncher's chance just because if the guy's making 40% and he can get it any time he wants, good luck. Like, some nights you're just going to win those battles because three is more than two. He made a huge one at the end of the game there in the corner coming off of a dribble handoff on the baseline from Rudy Gobert, which was just a really, really tough shot. And mm-hmm. it was a dagger because I think I think they were up four and it put him up seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, even though Boston was attempting to make a comeback and, and I know I 100 percent agree, that's what it's going to come down to. But, you know, so in terms of the playoff matchup, you know, I so I have uh, uh, the Lakers, two who we'll talk about in a second. And I have mm-hmm. the Clippers, three. We'll talk about the Clippers you had Lakers, Philly. Lakers, one jazz, two, right? I have the. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, Lakers I won jazz, two, but I had the Clippers in third place. And and I, I find them to be the, like kind of like a trifecta of bad matchups for each other. Uh, in the sense that, like, you know, the, the Clippers have these these big wings that can potentially cause problems for the Lakers' smaller guards that they like to play. Guys like Schroeder, guys like KCP that, that may be getting big minutes in a playoff series. Um, uh, that would be their pathway towards winning. I still think the Lakers are better, but that's their pathway. And also they can throw those bodies at LeBron, right? Like they have sure. more, they have more wings and that nobody's going to stop LeBron, obviously, but they can at least give him more problems than probably any other team in the league, just by the, the sheer number of players they can throw at him. I, I am so, uh, with all due respect, I'm so sick and tired of hearing that line of thinking because I've heard it so many times in so many different playoff series where it's like, Oh dude, he's going to have to have Robert Covington and Jeff green guard him in this series. Okay, he's going – dude, just wait. They have Torrey Craig and they have Jeremy Grant. Dude, they have Andre Guadalla and they have Jay Crowder and they have Jimmy Butler. He, they're going to be able to guard LeBron, and then he goes for 59%. So for whatever it's worth, the whole, like, I've got wings to throw at LeBron thing has literally been the most ineffective, uh, uh, you know, uh, cliche in the history of basketball. I do hear you, but I, I think if anyone is equipped to do it, it's Kawhi and Paul George. And Marcus Morris is at least a, a, a big body they can throw at him to. It, look, it is one of the most impossible things in the last eight years. of The last eight years are an example of just how impossible it is to stop LeBron James in a playoff series. He eventually figures it out, right? Mm-hmm. But in theory, he is getting older. And you would hope that younger bodies can maybe slow him down. I'm not saying it's going to work perfectly, but – you would hope you can make it at least a little bit tougher than anybody else has. And that, and that might be all it takes to win. You just get them down to 49 or 50% from the field instead of 55. 
Uh, so for the record, I agree with you. I, I yeah. think that they're the team that is best equipped to try to guard LeBron. They're the team that's best equipped to try to attack some of the uh, the defensive mismatches that they might have against the Lakers. But my point is, is that they are the team that on paper has the best chance to upset the Lakers. I think the Lakers would absolutely destroy this Utah Jazz team. They've got such good defensive guards like Dennis Schroeder, THT, and uh, and Alex Caruso are all all defense level guards. And then KCP is an above average defensive guard. So they've got, and then Wesley Matthews is an above average defensive guard. So they've got five really, really good guards that over a course of a playoff series are going to wear down Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley at the point of attack. And then in addition to that, guys like uh, Royce O'Neal, he's only like 6'4". Uh, uh, Bogdanovich, he's actually, he has a track record of, of giving LeBron some issues, but I think a big part of that is like, like LeBron would uh, uh, would kind of take his time in that particular matchup, and then he would attack it at the end of the game and have his way with him. I don't think Bogdanovich can stop LeBron. Same Indiana twenty nineteen or twenty eighteen, excuse me. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's Indiana a big series, series everybody points yeah. to as a Bogdanovich series. But if you watch that series, like like Bogdanovich spent a ton of time on LeBron. So yeah. as a result, in the phases of the game when LeBron was kind of coasting around, you know, but in big pivotal moments, Bogdanovich couldn't stop LeBron. He would, would yeah, just dog walk him to the rim every time. And then uh, and Joe Ingles is a little too skinny, 6'8", but he's a little too skinny. So I don't like their wing matchups. And then Anthony Davis is like historically just destroyed Rudy Gobert. Like, and not only not only is he historically destroyed Rudy Gobert, he gets like a sick pleasure out of doing it. Like when he matches up with Rudy Gobert, he's like, I, it kind of reminds me of like what Joel Embiid used to do to Andre Drummond, where it's like, I want him to go back to the locker room tonight and question whether or not he belongs in the NBA. That's the way Anthony Davis looks at, at Rudy Gobert. So I like, I like their guards ability to, to, to wear down uh, at the point of attack against Mitchell and Connolly. I really, really like LeBron's matchups against those wings and, and, and AD is going to have his way with Gobert. I think that's a, a matchup that could cause serious problems for the Jazz. But I also think that the Jazz can beat the Clippers. So it's like this weird kind of trifecta because the Jazz uh, have the, 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 the Clippers have terrible guards at the point of attack. Like that's the weakness of their defense. The reason why uh, uh, the Clippers defense has been bad this year, kind of a middling defense, even though they have Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and Serge Ibaka, a front court that theoretically should lock people up, it's because their guards are bad at the point of attack. That's why, that, that's why they're a bad defensive team. That's a weakness that the Jazz can exploit. And it's something it's something to keep an eye on. And then, you know, there's all this stuff with uh, uh, Joe Ingles and Paul George and all their history and stuff like that. Yep. No, I mean, I, I don't disagree with any of it. Um, just to move on to the Clippers, I, I think everybody seems to think they're better again this year. And I think they are like they're they're better than they were last year because I think Batum was a really nice addition. And so was Serge Ibaka. Like those are good additions that I think do matter in certain playoff matchups. But I, overall, I, I don't think they're any more of a contender than they were last year. That We've talked about this so many times that we honestly don't even need to go over it again. They still don't have a true playmaker or a true lead guard who, who can initiate them into sets and control the flow of a game when, when things slow down and when things get kind of ugly. Like as good as Kawhi is and he's improved in that way, He's just, he's still not that guy. He's improved a ton as a passer, and I've really liked some of the things I've seen from him in that area, but I don't think he can run your offense at the end of the day, and that matters in a playoff series. Like, they, they still, in my opinion, need to make a move for not only point of attack defense at the guard spot, like you're talking about, but also just a guy who can initiate offense on a consistent basis against good playoff defenses. So the Clippers are 
better, but I still don't see them as a true contender in really any sense of the word, unless they, unless they make a move, unless they get a good guard who can initiate offense and defend at the point of attack. That's why Rubio is such a perfect option there. And I'm not sure what he's saying, is, but, but he's a good defensive guard at the point of attack and he, and he can settle them down on offense. Who did you put first Clippers or Philly? So to be clear, we have, mm. I have Lakers one jazz two. you have jazz one Lakers two. Do you have the Clippers or Philly at three? I have Philly. So I put the Clippers at three because they have they lead the entire league in wins against teams that are 500 or better. That was the big differentiating factor for me. Um, they just have more quality wins. Philly, the problem with Philly, and this is something to keep an eye on, they basically have one really good win, and it was against the Lakers. And it was in a game that they won at the buzzer. They played Miami twice when they were absolutely decimated by the COVID stuff, like literally barely NBA roster on the floor. They played uh, uh, Boston twice without Tatum both times. And then the, uh, there was, uh, I can't remember what the third uh, uh, big win that they had, but it was also against a team that was severely hampered by injury. So that, the, the big thing with Philly is we don't really know who they are yet outside of that one Laker matchup. So that's why I gave the Clippers the edge. Why did you give Philly the edge? Um, because when their entire roster plays, they're probably the second best team in the league. In my, or, well, they're in that top three with, with Utah and LA and the Lakers. Um, and I've seen that stat. They're like 17-1 and one when they have their starting lineup or something. Yeah, they're 15-3 and three when Seth Curry plays, and they need him just for spacing reasons. Like if he's not on the floor, he provides just so much for them. And that's why I really like the fit when he went there because they needed another guy who was like a true shooter. And he is a true, true movement shooter. He's 50-50. I think – I still don't think he's missed a free throw this year. I think he's 50-50-100 at the moment. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. I saw that last night. That's an insane stat, by the way. Banan, uh, that, that family has the greatest hand-eye coordination in the history of the world. <laughs> like, oh. the, like, you have two sons in the NBA. After having a guy who was a 16-year spot-up sharpshooter in the league – your two sons are two of the best shooters ever. So, but uh, that's a tangent. We don't need to go there. Point, <laughs> point being, when their guys play, they win. Period. End of story. I know they only have one quality win. It's because Simmons has missed three games. Tobias has missed three games. Uh, Embiid has missed five games. Curry well, missed a, like seven game. or eight games. Yeah, sure. The, 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 this is something we're about to get into with Milwaukee, but like the problem is the Eastern Conference is once again garbage once you get past the top five or whatever it is. And I found out that the other team that they, they have, like they beat Brooklyn, that's great. Uh, uh, Kyrie and Kevin Durant didn't play. It's like, it's, so it's, they, they've run into a, 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 an unfortunate, you know, confluence of events with, you know, uh, a, a notoriously weak schedule as a result of injuries to injuries and COVID protocols that have destroyed the good teams they've played. And then they're in the Eastern Conference. So they keep they keep getting a bunch of the schedule breaks just by playing these bad teams at the bottom. But I I agree. Like, you know, I I uh, Philly when they're healthy has, has won every game. They deserve to be up there at the top. I just gave a slight edge to the Clippers on account of the fact that they have more quality wins. That was that was kind of the difference for me. But I think we do agree about the Clippers flaws and, and it's time to you know, uh, this was actually something I saw on Windhorse podcast. But did you know that, like, the Clippers are ranked 30th in clutch offense this year? I'll have, to, I'll have to double check it, but it was something I saw on the pod. I, I didn't hear that, but that didn't surprise me one bit. Yes, and so, and so they talked about this in the, uh, in the Brooklyn game. Uh, and it, and it, was, it was actually kind of genius, in, in, in my opinion. I want to say it was, uh, it was Bond Temps who was saying this. I know Bond Temps can say a bunch of uh, uh, questionable things from time to time. But he, he made a good point in this case. He basically said, like, look, like, Brooklyn can't guard anybody, but the Clippers are easy to guard in crunch time. 
because they go away from all of their normal actions that work over the course of the game, which is normal, by the way. When you get into crunch time, you can't really run core basic basketball stuff because if you do, you know, teams are way more dialed in defensively. They're way more physical. The refs are letting stuff go. It's a lot harder to run basic actions to get shots in crunch time. That's true. However, you got to do something other than just repetitively, you know, go to the same isolation moves. And, and the Clippers make themselves easy to guard in crunch time situations. So even teams like Brooklyn, as, as flawed as they are defensively, you know, you're, you're asking them to do the easiest parts of defense, which is like watch a predictable guy, you know, uh, one, four low or whatever it is, or four out, uh, just trying to run an isolation play where there's two guys digging in on either side and there's a help rotation. And, and it's one of those things where they, they kind of play right into the, uh, into their opponent's hands. And I, I'll have to double check the, the, the numbers, but yeah, like I'm pretty sure they're the worst clutch offense in the entire NBA right now. Yeah. I mean, the, <laughs> So once again, compare them to Brooklyn. The thing that I'd say is Kawhi and PG like want to be those guys in their head. Like they think they can be Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving or James Harden in terms of isolation scoring. And they're probably just not like their their handles aren't as good as probably any of those guys. And then their passing probably isn't as good as any of those guys. If you're just saying Kawhi and PG versus those other three guys, that's why Brooklyn can just subsist on saying, okay, it doesn't matter. We're not really going to defend. But if you get us late in a close game, we're probably going to end up winning because we have three guys who can literally create like an unbelievably good shot anytime down the floor. Whereas the Clippers, it's like a lot when you watch them late in games, it's like, man, they're really struggling to get like a quality look here. Like it ends up having to be Kawhi, like muscling his guy and trying to get a super tough 19 footer instead of like creating a, like a good amount of separation and being able to just like get off a clean look or creating a good look for somebody else. Even. Or, or like, mix it up. Like, yeah, like, yes, it's, it's the mix of the isolation yep. and the creating shots for your teammates. That's what keeps the defense on the heels. That's what that keeps, that keeps help defense at bay. Mm-hmm. Like LeBron has the luxury of playing one-on-one most of the time because teams can't double him when they do. He, he just get he just gets beat. And, and, it, and with Steph, it's the exact same thing. Sometimes he's on the ball. Sometimes he's off the ball. You know, sometimes he's looking for his own shot. Sometimes he will run a basic action to get uh, to start a four on three. He's he keeps the defense on their heels by mixing things up. So real quick, I want to give you these numbers. So they're 17th in offense in crunch time this season at 106.1 points per 100 possessions, which, by the way, is not good. You know, the teams you look at the top are the good teams. The Jazz are number one. You're not beating any good teams in the playoffs with that number. No chance. Lakers are number three, 126.5 points per 100 possessions, which, by the way, Lakers, terrible offensively as of late because they can't shoot. This is something we kind of glossed over. Last 10 games, they're 27th in three-point percentage. So they're just going through a really bad shooting stretch. Basically, LeBron's the only guy you can make a three right now. But they're 20th in offense over their last 10, but they're still winning because they're number one in defense over their last 10. But regardless, in crunch time, they're still getting lots and lots of good shots, 126.5. The Sixers are over 120 points per 100 possessions in crunch time. The Warriors, uh, eighth in the league in clutch offense at 116.1. So the Clippers being that far low with as much offensive talent they have is an indictment on, on, uh, on what they run in those uh, key moments, especially and since- roster construct and roster yeah. construct. They still don't have a guy that can set like Kawhi Leonard was able to be super successful in Toronto because not only do they have Kyle Lowry who can set the table, they had Marcus all, they had Fred Van Vliet guys who could get him the ball in the appropriate spots at the appropriate times, super right? high but, IQ guys. And they could space. And they, not only that, they were also really good floor spacers too. So it's like they had the best, he had the best of both worlds around him. Whereas the Clippers, he has some okay floor spacers, but nobody really that you're worried about. Mm-hmm. 
And so the uh, uh, the the Clippers have the second best offense in the league for the full forty eight, and they're seventeenth in crunch time. That tells you all you need to know. In addition to that, they're pretty bad defensively for the whole season, um, which to me is 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 mostly a result of those guards that we talked about. They they give up one hundred and thirty four point three points per one hundred possessions in crunch time. So as a 134.3, and that to me is because they play Lou Williams in crunch time, and they basically become a matchup nightmare uh, uh, on the on the defensive end. They are five and seven in games that involve clutch situations this year. Five and seven. Yeah, I, I just like I said it earlier. They are not a true contender, and they won't be unless they make some serious roster moves. I I don't have any faith in them, honestly, beating the Lakers. Or Utah, really. Even though they do present matchup problems for the Lakers, I still see the Lakers winning that series. And I think Utah could get them. Yeah, I. You still there? Yeah, yeah I'm still here. It just dropped off for a second. No worries. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I think that I think the Clippers. Uh, uh, I do. I do think that the the Clippers are ripe for a, 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 a an upset because of their inability to manage crunch time. It's also like you know this is the last thing I'll say about this before we move on. I. I think this is a a classic example of something you and I have talked about so many times over the past uh, year. You know, everybody oversimplifies crunch time basketball to, you know, the the Kobe 3-2-1 pulling up a a turnaround jumper over somebody. And, And that naturally draws them to people like Kevin Durant. It draws them to people like Kawhi Leonard. And Every single like basic, you know, uh, uh, common sense approach to basketball would tell you, no, it's more complicated than that. It's it's about creating offense per possession, you know, uh, uh, repeatedly creating quality shots and then on the defensive end getting stops like that's how you win basketball games. You win basketball games by creating better quality shots for several possessions over the end of the game. And if you just insist on taking crazy turnaround jump shots at the end, you're probably not going to create more high quality shots than your opponent. That's how you end up with a, a team. With Kawhi Leonard, who's universally recognized as one of the best closers in the league, that's five and seven in crunch time and is the 17th ranked offense in crunch time, despite being the second best offense for the rest of the game. That is a direct result of of them kind of overly embracing a flawed approach to what crunch time basketball is. LeBron is a classic example of a player that everybody, like a lot of his detractors think that he struggles at the end of games, but he's actually one of the best closers in NBA history. And it's because he sees the vision. He sees the vision of how you close basketball games, which is so much more complicated than can I do a a shimmy turnaround jump shot over somebody. 100%. And I think you said the Warriors are eighth in crunch time offense this year. Seventh, I think they were up there. That's a god-awful basketball team. I watch them every night. That is a bad basketball team. And the reason that they're still that good in crunch time is because, one, they obviously have Steph who can still create a shot basically anytime he wants. And, two, if he's not creating a shot, they're getting like a wide-open corner three or a dunk or a layup just because by the pure fact that he's on the floor and he's willing to be unselfish and either get off ball to create you know, a slip screen for somebody else to get a dunk or they go ping-ping, short roll to Draymond, then a wide-open corner three for Kelly Oubre, which – if I have to watch too many more of those, I'm going to blow my brains out. But <laughs> point, being, point being, they still get quality looks at the end of games. And that's what it's really about. The Clippers don't create quality looks, looks at the end of games. And they're going to struggle in those situations until they can consistently do that. So I agree with you. So let's move on to a team that, uh, that does create quality looks at the end of games. Although they also create quality looks for their opponent at the end of games. So I went uh, for number five. I put Brooklyn over Milwaukee, even mm-hmm. though Milwaukee has a better record. And the reason why I did... 
It's because they are seven and one against teams that are 500 and above. Now, I think you and I both agree that that's not sustainable, uh, um, especially since a lot of those wins came before James Harden joined. Um, uh, and we have our we have all of our reasons why. However, Brooklyn uh, has shown that that they can that they can beat good basketball teams. And I think it 100 percent comes down to the fact that when they play against a, a, a team that isn't, you know, uh, on that elite top tier uh, of these uh, uh, NBA contenders, they can just outscore. Them. And I think at the end of the day, that's got to be uh, something to factor in. Seven and one against 500 and above is nothing to slouch at. So that's why I have them at number five. Who did you have at number five? I actually agree with you there. I would still, I think Milwaukee's creeping on them and I'll get into the reasons a little bit later. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think, look, every time I see them late in a close game, I'm like, holy shit, how do you stop these guys? Like, and, and the question is going to be long-term, can they keep games close enough when it gets to the playoffs to actually be able to, to actualize how good they are late in close games? Because it's literally just, they're creating wide open looks almost every single time down the floor in the last six minutes of basketball games, which is, Probably the toughest thing to do in the game of basketball is to consistently create those looks. We just talked about it. They do it damn near every time because their their top three guys are so talented and so skilled at doing it. And, and I think what has actually been nice for Harden since going there, he doesn't have to be the guy that makes the shot late in the game, right? Because he is a good passer when he wants to be. And so he's able to just kind of, one, he has the spacing to operate and just go to the rim. Number two, if the help does come, he's able to find who's ever open. Um, so, no, I think Brooklyn at, at five is totally fair, but I do think Milwaukee has been playing better as of late, like the last week or two. They've made some adjustments that I really like that have um, that I think are going to be good for them long term. I don't know if it'll actually make them a better regular season basketball team, but I think it's it's going to be good for them come playoff time. But no, Brooklyn is I mean, they're also giving up like 120 points every game. They, they just lost to the Pistons like a couple of days ago it was either last night or the night before. Um, because they literally just couldn't get stops. KD was out, so that obviously makes a big difference. They're asking so much of him right now. And maybe the route is KD only takes 15 to 17 shots a game, and they give him more defensive responsibility, and he just kind of is a more of a catch-and-shoot like, catch guy, attack closeouts, and then isolate in games. Um, and they let Kyrie and Harden kind of handle the creation through the first 40 or so minutes. Um, they, they obviously still have issues, but I have no issue with them at five because the talent is so absurd at the top end of their roster. Yeah, you and I have talked a lot about this, but I 100% agree that the pathway for them is Kevin Durant embracing the defensive end of the ball. But yep. I do think that they're they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place for this season because DeAndre mm-hmm. Jordan is no longer capable of defending at an NBA level. He was getting attacked in isolation by Mason Plumley the other day. Uh, like literally, Some, somebody like, said on Twitter that Mason Plumley looked like Arvidas Sabonis in the first quarter. <laughs> I don't remember who it was. I don't remember who it was, but I was like, yeah, that wasn't even inaccurate. Like, it's pretty, it really bad. It's pretty bad when James Harden is pulling you to the side during a timeout and being like, "Bro, I need you to defend a little bit better." Yeah, uh, I, I. But like the, it's just going to be tough for him this year. They, they, they are up for. Let's say they just outscore everybody in the Eastern Conference and make the finals. I cannot imagine a worse matchup for Brooklyn than the Lakers. The the all kinds of bodies to throw at James Harden, including Alex Caruso, who did an amazing job guarding him in the playoffs last year. All sort like Dennis Schroeder. No one can guard Kyrie Irving, but there are guys on that roster who are going to give him problems. Um, uh, LeBron and, and LeBron is literally 
the best possible defender you could draw up for a Kevin Durant. And he, the problem is, is when Kevin Durant was coming full steam at him in 2017 and 2018, LeBron had kind of let the defensive rope slip. And I've, I've told you that has a lot to do. I, in my opinion, I think it's because he didn't think he could win. But uh, when you actually watched LeBron try to guard KD, and the most recent example, if you want to look at film, is game one of the 2018 finals. The one time LeBron was like, I'm going to try to beat these guys, even if it's just once. And uh, in that game, he gets really physical with him. LeBron has a, a like a, a gift for the ability to be physical within the rules in a way that refs can't really see or call. Uh, uh, you saw him do it to Shea Gilgis-Alexander the other day where he would make a series of moves. And there's definitely contact, but it's not contact that you can call a foul. But he's so strong that that contact just has like a crazy effect on the ball handler. Like he just kind of stumbles back and and, and loses his footing. But yeah. I think he's I think- so strong and so like he's so strong through his core and like his legs. And he's so wide at this point because, yeah, I mean, he's put on mass just by nature of being like 35, 36 years old that, yeah, he, he's able to control the control offensive players as much as you can within the confines of the rule book in 2021. Yeah, he, he can still be a really good on-ball defender if he, when he wants to be, and he, and he has wanted to be for most of the year. And in and, and and the theory where Kevin Durant has made the finals in this case, he will have done what we talked about, adopting a defensive role and becoming more passive on the offensive end. Like, LeBron can be guarding Kevin Durant and primarily be in help defense most of the game because of the fact that Kyrie Irving and James Harden are going to be taking 47 dribbles per possession trying to get a shot. So it's not even like a fatigue thing for LeBron. I, the, and then on the interior, on the offensive end, LeBron and Anthony Davis and Montrezl Harrell, too, are going to absolutely murder that team. Physically. They're going to score 90 points in the paint. It'll, yeah, be, it's gonna it'll be, be a bloodbath. So so I respect Brooklyn. They've had some success this year, a lot more success than people are letting on. Like I said, 7-1 mm-hmm. and one against teams that are 500 and above. Uh, uh, but even if they happen to, to make it out of the East, I think they're running into a buzzsaw. The, the thing, I, I think Milwaukee is a fraud. And I've always thought that they were a fraud since last year. And I can't believe they're getting away with the fraud again this year. And I'm glad that it's flying under the radar from the standpoint of media attention because of how bad they flamed out last year. But can you believe they're number one in net rating again this year by a big chunk? A big chunk? That's insane. They're the only team in the league that's over 10 in net rating, uh, over plus 10. They're 16 and 8 now, so their record's getting up there. But somehow... They've, they've only played a third of their games against teams that are 500 or better. And this was my big thing that I hammered home last year with, uh, with them playing uh, uh, one of the easiest schedules in the history of the NBA was this idea that, like, they would just – they have a machine. It's like literally like a chipper shredder. And when you throw a piece of wood, in this case a bad basketball team, into it, they demolish them every single time. But then when they run into anything that's not an easy basketball team, anything that resembles a quality basketball team, they're a 500 basketball team. Like that, that or maybe a little bit better than 500 over the course of a full season. But that's what this team is. This team just beats the living shit out of every Detroit Pistons, every Chicago Bulls, every Atlanta Hawks, or whoever it is that comes in through the door. And then they wilt against these better. They did have a quality win the other night against Denver. I don't want to completely understand. That was a good one. Yeah, but I'm sick of it because, like, like literally, this is the same team from last year. The record's not quite as good, but they're demolishing teams. And that was the big thing last year for Giannis's MVP case is, oh, they're demolishing everybody. And it's like, can, every, can, can we just all collectively admit and understand 
that this is the shtick. They beat the shit out of bad teams, and that and it inflates every statistical thing that they accomplish over the course of the season. I don't disagree on the whole, but I am going to divert a little bit here. So okay. the reason why they put, they play so many bad teams is because their division sucks. It's not just the Eastern Conference; their division sucks kind of year over year. So it's they're the second team in the conference right now. The rest of the division, the Central Division, is Indiana, who's fifth, Cleveland, who's eleventh, Chicago, who's twelfth, and Detroit, who's fifteenth. And those bottom three teams are bad basically every year, um, or at least they have been since LeBron left Cleveland, right? Those, those three teams at the bottom of that division have been bad every year. So basically they get to play 12 games against three of the worst teams in the league every year since they've actually become, you know, this kind of juggernaut Milwaukee. To go along with that, they're also in the East, so they just get naturally more easy games than a team in the West would. But what I'll say is, I think they might be starting to figure some things out. I don't want to jump the gun too much and say that they are, but I think the Denver win is instructive. Um, they are starting to use Giannis more as a role man. Yep, they're using they, him off the ball. They're starting to use him more in the post. They're starting to, to run more stuff through Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. So, and Drew, who we talked about kind of at length in our preseason pod, he's not really the guy you want to run a bunch of offense through. But if Chris Middleton is going to be this efficient, then – yeah, I think you can actually run a lot of offense through him, especially if you're featuring Giannis more in areas that play to his strengths, the post and as a role man. If you can get Giannis catching the ball at 17 feet against a slightly scrambled defense as opposed to him squaring up all five defenders from 30 feet, that's a huge difference because now he's catching the ball and he is he is good if you know that defense is slightly off kilter. He's going to be able to either get to the rim or create a wide open shot for somebody else. So... I do think they are showing signs of figuring things out. I don't want to jump the gun and say they certainly have because they could easily revert back to the way they've been playing for the last couple of years, um, which is they shred really bad teams by Giannis being overpowering at the rim, and then they create wide, wide open three-pointers as a result of that. Right, mm-hmm. And that's why they always decimate bad teams because they're getting Giannis dunks and layups and wide open threes for their role guys. And that, I mean – if you're doing that consistently, you're going to beat anybody, but they just haven't been able to do it against the good teams. That same formula doesn't work because Giannis really isn't that guy as an initiator. But I think moving him off the ball more is a really good thing if they continue to stick with it because they're going to be good defensively at the end of the day. Like They, they do have the pieces. Um, they, they don't have a ton of depth, but they do have the pieces to be a really good team, team defensively and especially a good playoff team defensively because they figure to be switchable if they use Giannis at the five more. And Drew um, Holiday is a defensive weapon in a playoff series. against pretty much everybody but LeBron. He's absolutely. No, we've, we've seen it time and again. Um, but I, I hope they keep doing what they're doing, man, because I, I think it's, it's a good thing that we have more good teams in the NBA that are playing to their strengths instead of just trying to play the same style of basketball. So I hope Giannis stays in the post more, and I hope he keeps getting used as a role man because those are both things that are going to help them win playoff series. I just think it's funny that they're properly rated this year by the masses despite more or less being the same team. I just think that's funny. They're, they, they, had, uh, uh, they had a better record last year as a result of uh, just the, over the totality of the season, them having such a good record against those bad teams. They got off to a rough start this year, probably having something to do with bubble turnaround and some of the chemistry stuff from Drew Holiday. But they are more or less the same team in, in what they've been able to accomplish this year. And I just think it's funny that they're properly rated because I was screaming this from the mountaintops all last year, last year. That's all I'm <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the thing that might hurt them, come, it might not even matter, all this, these are kind of slight improvements that I'm talking about come playoff time, is the fact that they're not deep at all. 
Like their their top five guys all play like twenty five plus a game at least, and then they don't. I think they only have one other guy on the roster over twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. Like that is not a deep team. So if any of their top five guys get gets hurt, it's they're basically curtains. Mm-hmm. They're they're going to be asking guys who are seventh, eighth, ninth man to play starter minutes. So the 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 last team that I had that was in that uh, uh, top two tiers the top tier being the 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 great teams we talked about and then the funky teams there in the middle I put Phoenix um, they're currently fourth in the West they're uh, six and four in their last ten they're fourteen and nine overall they are the third best defense in the league over their last ten um, fifth overall clear- defense fifth overall in defense so that's not it's not a fluke they are a really good defensive team yes and and they they have a clear identity that's forming. And this is something that you and I talk about all the time as like a necessity to contend for a championship is you got to have a clear cut identity because when the shit hits the fan in a playoff series, you have to be able to fall back on like core core principles. It's, it's kind of, it's just a basic ideology. It's, it's no different than like, it's something that always worked for me when I'd go through a shooting slump. Like when I go through a shooting slump, I focus on my fundamentals. When I'm when I need to make a shot and I miss a few in a row, as I'm going up, all I think I don't think about make or miss. I think about my fundamentals. As I'm going up, it's do I am I balanced? Am I getting my legs into my shot? Am I shooting with big hands? Like do I have my hands spread? And am I shooting up instead of out? If I focus on those things instead of the making and the missing, I usually will come out of my slump. And that's the way these teams have to be. They have to have some sort of like core identity, basic effort-based things that they can fall back on when they struggle. And this team defends like crazy. They play super slow, so they control the pace and and keep it down. And uh, uh, they have lots of shooting and defense surrounding Chris Paul and Devin Booker doing their things. And then when they're staggering those minutes, when they're off the floor, they run everything through uh, uh, Booker when CP's off the floor and everything through CP3 when Booker's off the floor and helps keep them in a rhythm. And, uh, and, And they're damn good. Uh, they're damn good, and I and, and I think and I think they're on the the verge of something that could potentially be a problem in a playoff series. Yeah, I wouldn't quite have them in that Milwaukee Brooklyn tier. I don't think. I mean, I, I see the argument for it. I don't think they're quite there, but they they have been better lately. And yeah, they're just they're a super balanced team, man. They have seven guys averaging ten points a game or more. Like they have a lot of guys who they can rely on. They're almost in a way they're like. Just in terms of the balance, they're like a mini Utah. They don't play anything like them just in terms of like style or pace or anything because Utah plays really fast. But they have a bunch of guys that they can kind of rely on, and they basically know they're going to get contributions from every night. Then they have a really good guy at the top. Well, they got two really good guys in kind of ISO and creating their own shot situations with CP and Devin Booker. And that, I mean, that is a formula for being a tough playoff team, especially if you defend because you're going to be in those games. And then, you know, Booker's kind of able to go toe-to-toe with almost anybody in the league at the end of the game. So if they can stay close and keep these games tight and going so into playoff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So can CP. So they got really two guys who can do it. Um, no, they're just a really solid team. And they had some kind of injury COVID issues early on. They're coming through that a little bit. And that's that's been, I think, the tough part of maybe doing something like a power ranking so far is there's been so many teams where it's like, uh, well, these guys have had four of their top five guys miss seven, eight, nine okay, games. Okay, but can we – can we say one thing about that though? Sure. Like in terms of like, cause someone was saying the same thing when we were talking the MVP debate earlier, which is the MVP debate is That's different. an absolute shit show because, because like 
no one's being honest. There's a, a, a fourth of writers have put Jokic at number one, which is the most asinine thing in like the history of basketball takes. If, if Jokic is one, then why isn't Steph Curry two? Like, if yeah. we're just going to, because our records are the, basically the same and Steph's numbers are just as good. Yeah. Like, and, I, I don't see the argument for either guy. And then Embiid fans are acting like LeBron has no case. LeBron fans are acting like Embiid has no case. It's literally turned into a, a total shit show. But I was talking about it with somebody this morning who was like, you can't blame Embiid for the COVID stuff. And, and I agree. But, you know, Los Angeles has been ramrodded by this COVID thing as bad as any city. And for some reason, the Lakers have been okay. Now, I, I, I don't know what that reason is, but I think it's I think it's I think it's possible that the leadership in the Laker organization, starting from LeBron and AD down, has basically told these guys, don't mess around. Stay in your hotel room. And uh, th- this is going to impact our ability to win this season. Uh, we, are, we are here. We're professionals. We are doing a job. Nobody misses a COVID test. You know, uh, nobody uh, uh, breaks the rules. And then I think some of these other teams have been a little bit more relaxed on that stuff. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the Lakers, despite living in literally a crazy city like Los Angeles, where probably half of the Instagram models of the world live. And, and uh, I'm serious. It, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that they've done better. I think that there's something to be said about leadership in that. And, and I think that's part of it. Like Embiid needs to look these dudes in the face and be like, stay in your damn hotel room. We're trying to win a title here. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's something to keep in mind. Sure. Like, I don't doubt that LeBron has done that because he probably, I mean, I would put money that he has done something like that, at least in some form or fashion. He probably did it at the beginning of the year. Having even said that, Philly's 18 and seven and the Lakers are 19 and six. So it hasn't made a huge difference. I, I, I think those I know, two guys I'm just, are I'm the, just saying in terms of the, the Phoenix Suns, like people being like, oh, like sure. I think that's sure. part of it. I think I think you're a less disciplined. I'd be shocked. Team if I'd be shocked if CP didn't say that, though. I'd be shocked if if Chris Paul didn't say something like that, though. I just think Phoenix has a point. bunch. Of, they are Phoenix has a bunch of guys under twenty roster. Booker's Booker's twenty five and famous for or 24, 25 and famous for dating models like DeAndre Ayton's in his early twenties. Um, Cameron Payne's kind of early twenties. Cam Johnson, like that, is a fairly young roster. So I, I think it's just. It's Arizona like, has bars and restaurants up too. They do. That is a very real thing. Absolutely. I got friends that live in the Phoenix area, so I know how open it is out there. Point being, like, I, I don't want it, to – it's just been tough overall to do this stuff. But point being, I think Phoenix is kind of coming through some of that, and they're getting healthier. A lot of their guys are playing more games. And I think end of the year they could end up in that, in that Brooklyn-Milwaukee tier. I don't have them quite there yet, even though the record says it. Um, I just don't think they've been as overall as good despite the record. So uh, let, let's. Uh, there's a couple teams that I really want to dive into. So let's let's uh, get moving forward here. I have. This is where we get into the mix of all the teams that are right around 500. At eight, I put Golden State. A um, couple things about Golden State because I know they've been really up and down this year. Uh, they're fourth in net rating in their last ten, and one of the reasons for that is they're losing close games. They're five and five uh, in games that have involved crunch time this season. And part of that has to do with youth, and uh, uh, and it's a miracle they've managed to win five crunch time games, and that is a, to Steph Curry. They I, should have I, won the last two. They should have won the Dallas and the San Antonio ones that they dropped. It, exactly. They had, and they just made, like you're kind of pointing to, dumb, youthful mistakes, or just bad player mistakes, honestly. For sure. A lot of bad players on that roster. But they're good. They're, they're a good team because they're losing the, the close games, uh, and they're blowing teams out when they play well. 
that and that to me is a is a is a sign of a good team because they're roughly 500 in the close games and then they're winning a lot of blowouts. They're never getting blown out, or at least not as often as they were early in the season. So I think and and then uh, uh, and then I, the, one of the biggest reasons I put them above everyone else is in terms of a tiebreaker. You know, in terms of how they project as a postseason team, like. Steph Curry has been, in my opinion, the, the like the second or third best player in basketball this year, which is right about right around where you and I uh, projected him. And I, and I want you to to go into this at length, but I just wanted to pay him the compliment because, again, and I've said this two or three times this season, there was a fork in the road this year about the way this season could have gone, and and Steph has resoundingly gone the route of I'm playing every night and I'm not going down without a fight. And, and quite frankly, I think this is the best version of Steph Curry I've ever seen. I think he's significantly better than he was in 2016. I know people are, can't comprehend that because they're so obsessed with the results. And they can't, over, they can't see over the fact that they won 73 games in 2016. 2021 Steph Curry would wash 2016 Steph Curry. He has such a better command of the game. He sees the floor so much better. He takes better care of the ball. He's, he's just a better basketball player. And, and, I, and I just want to, again, for the, the fourth or fifth time this year, just pay him a compliment. And, and I know you have a bunch you want to say about him, but I, I've just been blown away. Yeah, so I would agree that he has been that guy the last 13 games. And where I, So if we're doing power rankings at the moment, I almost don't disagree just because they have been really good basically since Draymond Green has returned. They, they took a while to kind of get figure, things figured out, like four or five games to really kind of figure out how they wanted to play, how they need to defend, all that stuff when he came back. But since then, like you're pointing to, to lot, you said the last 10 games, they're fourth in net rating. Fourth in net rating. Yep. So, I mean, that doesn't surprise but me. They're only, they, I think they're only five and five in those 10 games, but they're fourth yeah. in net rating, which goes to what I said earlier. The, yeah, they're, but they're also very close to being like seven and three or eight and two. So it's just a matter of really figuring out how the late games need to flow um, and, and what they need to get done and j- basically just not make as many stupid mistakes. Because if they can – their bench was really good early in the year, and it's actually been really bad lately. Like they're, they were actually helping the team stay in games early on when that starting lineup was so bad. Uh, when the starting lineup was down 15 every quarter, um, every first quarter, and then the bench would have to bring them back. And it, now the inverse has happened. Now the, the starters are creating leads and the bench has dwindled them away. And I think that's more of just who's playing with what unit, more so than anything else. It's more Kelly Uber minutes with the second units, and that's when the leads tend to slip away. Um, but point being, they have been a lot better lately, um, and Steph specifically. So his last 13 games, he is 31 points a game, Five and a half rebounds, five and a half assists, 53, 47, 92 from the line. Bananas. Doesn't even, I mean, doesn't Do you, even make sense. Remember what I said? I thought he would end the season around the high 30s because of shot quality in terms of his three-point percentage. I didn't even disagree with you, but he looks so that much when different. He was already starting to play better, too. Like, that was yeah. just, he's, he is unfreaking believable. Mm-hmm. He he looks night and day from what he did early in the season. Early in the season, it was like he was pump faking wide open threes, and he was like unsure of when to shoot the ball and when not to, when to get his teammates involved, when not to. And maybe it was all an adjustment period. And something that I was talking about with uh, Samus Vandiari last night was he's just played 20 games in a row for the first time in two years. Like he hadn't That's played been this. the most impressive part to me. Yeah, yeah, right? So he, he's been really healthy. Um, and he, he has added some bulk, which I actually questioned, but it doesn't seem to be affecting his shot at all. His rhythm coming into his shots is really nice right now. He's, 
He's getting his feet set correctly, which he wasn't doing early in the year. He was taking all these extra little steps and hops um, and just like weird rhythm things that I had never really seen him do. Uh, but all that stuff has gone away now. And the added strength, just watching him these past four, five, six games, he's really understanding how to use it. He used to be a guy that created separation kind of going east-west, right? He'd give these big kind of sweeping crossovers behind the back moves, and he'd have to get distance from the defender moving east or west, and then he'd be able to go north and south. In the, in the past four or five games against both Dallas and San Antonio, he's been like just making these tight kind of crossover in between the legs moves, and he's getting into like bigger guys' bodies, Rudy Gay, Maxi Kleba, um, a lot of kind of the bigger wings and big men on these teams, and he's like going through their bodies. So he's like driving north and south now, and that's making such a difference. And obviously, number one, in he's getting to the rim quicker, um, and defenders are having less time to come over and affect his shots. And then also, he's looked incredible lately offensively because Draymond's at the five, and spacing is just the ultimate amplifier for superstar stats, right? And this is the James Harden thing. This is why his numbers, I think, partially were so good in Houston for so many years, because he had just the most amount of space to work with at all times. And they've given that to Steph just out of necessity because all their big men are hurt right now. And he's been, he can get a layup whenever he wants. He can get a three whenever he wants. He's just, he's spectacular right now, man. I don't know if he's like way better than 2016, but his command is certainly better. Um, He's not quite as quick, obviously, because you never are at 32 as you were at 27. But yeah, he, he is playing at as high as a level as I've seen him play probably since the 2017 playoffs, at least, Everything considered, right? Like, he doesn't have the talent around him this year, and the numbers have just been bananas the past month. The last thing I want to say about Steph before we move on is, like, I talked about this a little bit on Twitter earlier today, but the most impressive thing to me about what he's doing this year is that uh, he's adapting faster than the league is, which is which is wild. Because, you know, you and I talked a lot in a, in a previous podcast about how in 2016, if you look at the way these teams were guarding him, uh, uh, the way they were guarding him more like a traditional guard using traditional pick and roll coverages, not picking him up until he got to like 22, 23 feet. And he was just killing teams by taking advantage of their, uh, you know, lack of awareness and their, their inability to anticipate what he was about to do. Well, now you fast forward a half decade and everybody knows what he's going to do. And every pick and roll coverage in the entire league has been completely transformed into how to stop Steph Curry, which has become a league wide thing because so many other guards have started copying him and his ability to, you know, be aggressive as a jump shooter, as a ball handler coming off of screens and, and from great distances. But all of this stuff has been has been transformed into how do we stop Steph Curry? And he stayed one step ahead of him. And, and to me, that and to me, that's why he's better. And, 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 you know, like you, you mentioned, like, oh, well, the, maybe his mental uh, uh, grip of the game is a little bit better. Well, to me, that is the, one of the biggest parts of the game. It's, it's why I've been, you know, it's one of the things I've been, I've been uh, beating the drum with uh, the MVP uh, debate as it pertains to LeBron. Is everyone's like, oh, he's only averaging 25, 8, and 8. And I'm like, look at how many guys in the league are averaging over 25 points now. Like, we have to stop watching box scores here, people, because it's just not a tell for how much a person is impacting winning. Because, you know, Steph Curry's stats are, are more or less the same as they were in 2016. Uh, but his impact on winning now, in my opinion, is, is so much greater. Yeah. It, his ability to control these games. And, and I think it starts from here. And what I'd say is it wasn't that way early in this season. And it's been interesting how quickly he's adapt, adapted because 
early in the season, these games would like get out of hand early, and it would just be like, dude, you got to get aggressive, man. Like you got to start doing something, or else this game is going to be gone. Over the, over kind of the weekend against Dallas, and then last night against San Antonio, he sensed the game getting away early, and he's like, okay, I just got to be aggressive. Like I just got to go, and I know I, it's early in the game, and I don't want to burn myself out, but I just got to start scoring. And he did. He wasn't even making threes last night against San Antonio to start that game. He's like, all right, I'm just going to go get four or five layups and keep us in this thing. Whereas early in the season, he was just kind of like getting off the ball and, and kind of putting his hands up and being like, oh, I don't want to deal with this. I just kind of want, want to play basketball how I want to. But he's figured out, all right, I just got to be more aggressive in certain spots and keep this team in games. Because if I do and I can get the game close in the end, then I like my chances against basically anybody in the league. Well, one thing, one thing I'll cut him some slack for is, and I said this from the very beginning, he was bound to struggle to start the season yeah. because ba- basketball is a rhythm sport and he was away from the game for a really long time. And so, like, you know, uh, I, I, I attribute it to learning a new roster, learning how to win with this roster, but also just like, okay, playing NBA basketball is really hard and I didn't do it for three years, I, yeah. I think, or almost three years. So I think, I think that's a big part of it. So really quickly here, the, we talked about how there's this big mess of teams and, and we had Golden State at the top because of, uh, of Steph Curry. The two teams that I picked out, these are the teams I had ninth and 10th. The two teams that I picked out from that crowd of teams uh, again, this is ahead, ahead of teams like Denver, ahead of teams like Portland, or Sacramento and Toronto. Toronto, I had 10th because they've gone 9-5 and five in their last 14 games. During that span, they're 6th in offense and 7th in net rating. They're starting to look more like the old Toronto Raptors. Pascal Siakam's starting to play better. You know, uh, uh, they're more or less the same identity that they had. Nick Nurse is an amazing coach, man. Oh, like, yeah. He figures it out. It, it took him 10 or 15 games, but he's like, all right, I know what i got to do to win with this roster, and now they look great. And he kept them dialed in. That could have slipped off the rails really quickly, and they could have gone into tanking. Um, uh, and the ninth, and I want to talk about them more after you give me your last two teams. But I put Sacramento ninth. They're seven and three in their last ten. They're one of they're the only team in the bottom half of the league or the bottom uh, two thirds of the league that is better than six and four in their last ten because everybody just continues to hover around five hundred in this ridiculously talented league. But in this seven wins, they beat the Clippers, they beat the Nuggets, they beat the Celtics. They beat the Pelicans, who have been almost as good as them in the past 10 games. And they beat the Raptors, who, again, who have been dialed in over the last 14 games. They have a, a mountain of quality wins that's coming in. They're 11th in the league in defense uh, uh, over that span. So they're playing a lot better defense from where they were uh, to start the season, which was historically bad. So I put Sacramento at ninth. Before we dive into Sacramento, because I do want to talk about them a little bit more, did you have any different teams in 9 or 10? Yeah, I mean, I, I had two different teams. I just went, I went Boston. Let's hear real and, quick. Let's hear real Yeah, I went Boston and Denver just on, I think, like you said, there's a glut of teams right there, right? And for the same reasons that we gave for Golden State being above the rest of these teams, which I wouldn't necessarily have, but look, I'm a Warriors fan, so I'm just going to side with that. <laughs> um, no, I think at the end of the day, Jokic is one of the top six or seven players in the league at worst. And if it came down to it in a series against Sacramento or any other kind of West playoff team behind Golden State, I would probably take Denver. Um, and if we're just doing tiebreakers, I'm going to kind of base it on that. So I have Denver and then Boston for and, and Boston for kind of the same reasons. I think Tatum has been really good once again this year. And Jalen Brown has taken just an eight bananas level leap. I don't even understand how he did it because they didn't even have a long offseason. Like he is – so much better this year. And he's just really got gotten more better efficient. in the bubble. I think the bubble was sure. kind of an off season for some of those guys. In sure. the terms, they were playing games, but they it was almost like their, their normal off season, like pickup, 
right? Yeah, but they were sure. just doing it in, in a more kind of organized environment. So they were actually getting instruction while it was happening. We've seen kind of the same thing with BAM because BAM's gotten a lot better too. Um, but Boston's yeah, destroyed by injuries too in COVID. Yeah. Yep. Jalen Brown was out with a sore knee for a while. They lost Tatum for a while there in the, in the middle. Smart's out right now. Like, Smart they, pulled his calf. Yeah, they're in trouble. Yeah, I, if they get healthy, I think they'll still be – I don't think they're like a contender contender, but they're still going to be a really good playoff team at the end of the day. So the, yeah, teams the, like that so far down, by the way, is is just a testament to how ridiculously good the league is right now. Yep, yep, exactly. No, those are two super talented teams. Denver has the same issues that we've touched on. Uh, they can't really guard anybody, even though it has been better lately. Um, yeah, I think they're just going to get – Denver's just going to get ran by good teams because they, their defense isn't good enough. That Kind of their saving grace last year was that they did have Torrey Craig and Jeremy Grant to throw at other teams. You know, if they needed to go a little bit more defensive-minded, they could. They don't even really have that option this year. They've, like, gone all in on offense. And then Jamal Murray is who all of us who were Jamal Murray doubters kind of thought he was. Like, he, he still has a chance to be a really good player. He's still really young. I don't want to come in too hard on the guy, but he wasn't the guy that we saw in the bubble. So in, unless he, like – gets in another playoff scenario this year and is like similar again. And it's like, okay, he's just one of these weird guys who's going to be averaging during the regular season, then amazing in the playoffs. Their ultimate ceiling is, is going to be somewhat limited if they don't get a lot better defensively. They, you know, I watched that Laker Denver game twice and the Lakers turning it up and absolutely obliterating them kind of took the shine off the apple of what was actually a pretty solid Denver performance. You know, through through two and a half quarters, Denver took it to them. And they present real problems. Like, Jamal Murray is still really, really good when he's playing well. I mean, he's he's inconsistent, but he's so still really good when he's playing well. They, they have, you know, when Will Barton's healthy, who he was not healthy in the playoffs last year, he's really good defensively. Um, you know, Monte Morris is as good a bench guard as you'll find in the league. You know, Michael Porter Jr. Uh, uh, is starting to figure out his uh, his offensive role alongside Jokic and Murray. They have a lot to build on. Uh, but 12, yeah, to me, uh, uh, they, they just have a long way to go in terms of figuring out how to how to overcompensate for their 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 defensive shortcomings. In my opinion, uh, I think they need a scheme in a way more similar to what the Lakers do and and kind of overpressure the three point line with their guards. And, and try to funnel everything into Jokic, who's actually okay as long as he's under the basket waiting for people and not guarding out in space. Yeah, if he's uh, in space, it's a nightmare, but he's he's so smart and he uses his length really well when he's around the rim. Like he gets a lot of deflections and he can kind of just bothers shots in like almost a weirdly Draymond Green manner. Um, mm-hmm. Like he's not as good as Draymond, obviously, on that end, but like it's the same type of thing where it's like, wow, that you don't really see it just like normally because he's not super athletic. He's not like gonna just absolutely destroy people physically but he's just uses his length really well and he's super duper smart he positions himself well he rotates at the correct times he takes away two guys at the same time like he is really smart but it's just you got to keep him under the rim because if he gets in space it's a nightmare for sure so, so quickly before we get out of here uh so we did agree on our last uh, we did disagree on our last two i had sacramento and toronto you had boston and denver yeah um but we did say we wanted to talk about sacramento for a second so yeah. Um, like we said, five really quality wins in their last seven wins, seven wins in their last 10 games. Um, uh, Zach Lowe did a deep dive with uh, De'Aaron Fox in an interview the other day. If you haven't listened to that yet, listen to it. De'Aaron Fox is just about as likable a guy as you'll find in the league. You could tell he's just an absolute hoops junkie. He's uh, uh, loves the game. He's enjoying every minute of what they're doing out there. Uh and and uh, uh, he's not like you know bogged down in the complaining about the league right now and stuff like that. He's just you could just tell he's a kid 
who's jubilant and, and just loves and just loves playing basketball. And then one of the things that Zach Lowe touched on that I thought was really interesting is one, they're playing better defense, um, uh, which when you watch them, it makes sense to, uh, to the naked eye. And then two, they found a closing lineup that works. They're playing Rashawn Holmes at center. Very athletic, very switchable. Really good player. Really, really good player. Um, he's great at finishing around the rim, which is crazy because he was not like that when he was in Philly. No. Uh, he was a dunker. He's kind of more like a Kelly Oubre kind of guy. Like if he was throwing it down at the rim, he was making everything, but he couldn't, he couldn't finish around the rim other than that. Um, and then they're playing Harrison Barnes at the four. And, and then they're playing Buddy Hill, Tyrese Halliburton, and De'Aaron Fox. And, but the, the primary reason why they've been so good is De'Aaron Fox is all of a sudden a superstar. And it's not like, you know, it's not quite Derrick Rose in 2011, but I can't remember a guard in the last few years, pretty much since like Russell Westbrook when he was at his athletic peak, who you just can't stay in front of him. And, and, and the only way to stay in front of him is to uh, essentially run a drop coverage, in which case he's added this arsenal of floaters and, and step backs and stuff from like five to 10 feet where he can finish over the top. And, and he, he's flat out become a star. And, and that in combination with finding some lineups that work and then playing defense has led to a lot of really quality wins. And the Lakers have Sacramento coming up on the schedule, I think, here in a, I think in a couple of days. And that is an infinitely more interesting game now than it was a few days ago. They're just a really fun team, man, Specific, specifically like that closing lineup. Buddy's an incredible shooter. Like just it, one of like He's the most – in again after buying out. Yeah, one of the just like the most unconscious like gunners in the league, but just in the most fun way possible because he really shoots it well. Like he doesn't care if he's missed his last seven shots. He's letting the next one fly. He Like he never thinks twice about it, and he's good enough of a shooter to like make that work. Um, Halliburton is just super fun for a rookie, way beyond his years IQ-wise. A really good passer, smart team defender. He was knows in college to- a long time, right? Do you remember? No, just two years. He was just a two-year two guy years? at Iowa State. Okay. I, two-year guy at Iowa State. Um, he was a he was a big guy on draft Twitter. Uh, I was obviously following a lot of the NBA draft stuff last year because the Warriors were going to have one of the best picks in the league. Um, he was a darling of all the NBA draft Twitter guys. Um, just, just a super smart player, like a guy who will – absolutely play for a championship team at some point in his career. Like the I don't know if that example of a young player comes in the league knowing how to play off the ball, which is extremely rare. He's like, he was like early in their games this year. He was like directing traffic and like telling guys where to go offensively late in, in uh, games. I was like, dude, who is this kid? He's only 20, 21 years old. He's super impressive. Obviously. His Harrison, a little funky. He's a little, it is funky. A little funky, but that's the only thing. He's got good size though, too. Yeah. The touch is like the touch is good. He's always, historically in college like now he's above 80 percent from the line so i mean i think he's going to be fine as a shooter he'll never be a super dynamic off the dribble guy just because of the limiting factors of the form unless he really changes something uh, but he's just going to be a really good player for a long time like a guy that ends up on a championship team at some point just because he does so many things well um harrison barnes is just having like almost a mid-career renaissance like he's a good passer now and like well he's a of, savvy veteran and he makes yeah. all these like winning plays like, yeah like, it's, it's hilarious like, he had this offensive rebound put back against the Clippers the other night where I was like, first of all, how the hell did he do that? Mm-hmm. And then second of all, like that's a play 89% of the league quits on. Like mm-hmm. they just run back on defense. And he's yep. like, no, 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 I'm going to go over the top of Kawhi freaking Leonard and I'm going to put this ball in the basket. And Kawhi's like one of the best contested rebounders ever for his size. You know, yeah, like I, I love it, man. Like obviously Harrison Barnes was <laughs> – a point of hatred for many Warriors fans after the 2016 finals, after not being able to make anything, but that dude, he's reinvented himself. He's having an incredible year and I would, I'd love to have him back on the Warriors. Now he'd be an incredible, he's an incredible piece for any good team, Mm -hmm. but ultimately it does come down to De'Aaron Fox. Who's just been 
insane. He, I want to say he's like 29 a game on 50, 35, 80 something from the field, eight assists, four rebounds. What he has really learned how to do, and I was watching that Philly game last night, he's obviously one of the fastest guys in the league. Like everybody knows that. But what he's learned how to do is change speeds and control his pace to where it's like you have no idea when he's going like when he's going to go slow or when he's going to go fast. And that's when you see the real mastery by these super quick guards when they learn, Okay, I am one of the fastest guys on the floor, no matter who I'm playing against. But I also know how to use that to my advantage. Right. Like I know how to change speeds enough to where you're always going to be off balance. And if I can just keep you a little bit off balance, I'm going to blow by you basically every time because my top end speed is so much faster than yours. He's just he's a delight to watch, man. And, and like you said, he's one of the best personalities in the NBA. It's, it kind of sucks that he's stuck in Sacramento because it's not a, it's not a big market and he'll just never get that much media coverage. Uh, but no, he's just he's a super fun player person like in every way. Like you just want to root for that dude, even if he's not on your team. He's he's amazing. He's amazing. I thought he yeah, he said something. I, I I'm I'm a hoops nerd, so I I always uh, I get excited about stuff like this. But he he said something that was super fascinating in that interview with Zach Lowe uh, that I thought was a really interesting thing as in terms of a league wide trend. He basically said, when I got into the league, guys went under screens on me, and he's and he's like he's like I'm I'm a better shooter now than I was then, but he's like I think he basically said that. Every team in the league goes over the top of screen and roll now. Like, and this is a Steph Curry thing. This is a thing that, this is a thing that Steph Curry changed about the NBA. He changed the way these teams defend. And he's like, he's like, I am getting into the, the paint better than I ever have in my life because no matter who I play, these teams are practicing going over the top of screen and roll. And so, you know, now this is where I'm kind of uh, uh, adding to that. Like, he's a good, not great shooter. So th- he's mm-hmm. not a player that I personally would go over the top of screen and roll on. But because teams are just – now it'll be an interesting thing in a playoff series. if they. Get I was just about to say that, right? Like, a smart team is probably going to – like, during the year, you're just working on the stuff that you're going to do a lot because that's how you have to guard everybody. It's easier to just – keep kind of uniform principles on a night-to-night basis and not really alter from those much. Mm. A smart coach is going to be like, we're just going to go under screens on him. And then that's going to be when either he turns the next corner and becomes a true superstar and he can punish you when you go under, or he's so smart and so crafty that even when you are going under, he learns how to work re-screens well enough and he learns how to, to use kind of his guile and his craft on top of his speed to really create advantages no matter how teams are guarding him. Yeah, and and and, uh, and I, I I thought the same thing when he said that. And Zach Lowe actually brought it up in the thing. He's like, you know, these teams are going to make you make jump shots, right? And he's like, yeah. Uh, but but the part of that that was interesting is it's an important context to try to frame regular season basketball because you know, like uh, we talk all the time about you know the Milwaukee Bucks and their lack of adjustments. But I think I think I think there are rare teams that really try to adjust on a game-to-game basis in the regular season. I think the Lakers are an example of this, and I think that's why they're the number one defense in the league. Frank Vogel approaches every single regular season game like it's a playoff game. He builds a custom scouting report and a custom defensive uh, uh, game plan. But I think a lot of these teams, in the grind of the regular season, trust a basic set of principles. And and so that's an example of that. And and I think De'Aaron Fox kind of like, tattletailed on the rest of the league in a way because he basically yeah. said like like all of these teams are guarding the same way yep. and they're seeing it on they're seeing it on film and it's like okay we're we're on the road in sacramento tonight what like what, what's the game plan okay we're gonna do our 
stock, you know, uh, pick and roll coverage. You know, we're going to do, you know, we're going to just run these, you know, base concepts all game long. And there's an advantage to that as it pertains to hiding your cards, so to speak. Although yep. I'm not sure. I'm not That's sure a big much. Steve Kerr thing that I yeah. like Kerr never really outright says that, but I know he doesn't make a ton of adjustments during the regular season because he doesn't want to show his cards too early. And, but does that be, make sense in the NBA though? When he honestly, he honestly waits. Anyways. He waits too long in playoff series to adjust, so that always pisses me off too. Like he'll wait till the last possible moment to make the biggest adjustment. It's like, dude, just do it earlier so you can get the series over with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know. My thing is, I think for a lot of rosters, it is tough to adjust on a night to night basis. Like in a, a roster like the Lakers or the Bucks or the Sixers, where they're like a lot of good really smart players. Sure. You can adjust on a night to night basis, but for your run of the mill NBA roster, like I'm watching it with the Warriors this year. A lot of these guys, I wouldn't trust to make game to game adjustments. Like I just yeah, wouldn't. They would, they would run the wrong game plan. They, like they, they just yeah. think, Oh, we've been playing drop coverage for the last three games. And tonight we're, you know, we're either going under or we're, um, we're hard hedging and they would just totally forget. And now we're all out of rotation because Kelly Oubre once again, forgot what coverage we're playing. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, like I think, I think there's an important distinction to make between like good smart teams and then just kind of your average or below average NBA teams. Yeah. I, I, I think, I, I just think it's funny. I, I think it makes more sense to, uh, uh, I think it makes more sense to, you know, you're right to, to cater it to your specific roster. And maybe with a group of young guys, you're more focused on discipline. So it yep. makes more sense to get them just to try to do the same thing over and over again. But with the veteran teams who are smarter, it's kind of like practice for the playoffs to teach them to play different types of defense. I would probably go with the, that second option, and, uh, and and I'm a big believer uh, in what the Lakers do defensively. Uh, and then as far as hiding things go, like it makes a ton of sense in the NFL because you're you're, you're getting somebody in a one game setting, and mm-hmm. you know if you bring something out and it can help you control a half, it could literally swing. Uh, you know, like they talked about uh, how Todd Bowles did that for the Buccaneers, basically like. He was always a guy who blitzed. He blitzed over 40% of downs uh, mm-hmm. for the most part leading into that game. And then suddenly in the Super Bowl, he's like, nope, four-man rush, two safeties yep. back. We're going to take yep. away the We're ball. just taking away Tyreek yeah. Hill. He's not going to catch anything over the top. And it obviously messed the Chiefs up enough to where Tampa Bay controlled that game. Yeah, whereas if they played it again, maybe the, the Tampa Bay, uh, maybe Kansas City can make an adjustment. But in the NBA, it's like it's like – you know, you can, you can get caught with your pants down in game one and then control the series by game three. So like, it's, it's, it's totally, it's totally different, but uh, really, really good stuff today. We actually did manage to get through all 10, although we did go an hour and 26 minutes and uh, you and I probably both have some work to do. So we're going to call it a day, but uh, thank you guys, all of you for listening podcast version coming later, Tommy, as always, I appreciate your help, man. And I appreciate your support and we will see you early next week. Thanks, man. Sounds good. Can't wait.